Before we get started today, I want to tell you about a cool limited run series that WFAE is putting out. It's called Work It. It's running November 13th to December 18th. And they're having conversations with people about their relationships to their jobs and how those relationships shape their view of the world. It's hosted by TEDx Charlotte organizers Stephanie Hale and Jill Byers, who follow their curiosities underneath the job and the question, what do you do? And into the beautifully complex identities of people we encounter in our everyday lives, from carpet layers to lawyers, barbers to burlesque performers and beyond. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts. I can't believe we're done already, but what an amazing run. And I owe so much to you for even asking to do this. So we just did it. We were just like, fuck it. Let's do this season. Go us. For just fucking doing it live. We did it live. <laughs> well, here we are. Here we are, here Amy. We are. We're at the end of our first season of Labor, the social science on work, women and motherhood. My name is Elise Hugh. And I'm Amy Westervelt. And we just want to thank all y'all for joining us this season, for giving us a shot, for giving us a little bit of your attention or your rides to wherever you drive. (laughs) Just around now, around the block. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, you know, people that are listening while they're doing homeschooling or trying to juggle all of the things. We appreciate you guys taking the time. And the two of us have learned a lot over these past 10 weeks that we've spent having conversations, right? About why motherhood got so messed up in America, ways to fix it. And it's all played out in the middle of a health and social and economic crisis. Yeah, that's right. If there's one thing that we really want to hammer home after this season, it's that this health and economic crisis is also a family crisis. Yeah. It's rooted in this idea of family that, as we have discovered in many of these conversations, the idea of the nuclear family in the U.S. is unworkable on its own. And to truly tackle the problems of the pandemic and our politics, we're going to have to do things a lot differently. Yeah, exactly. And think about those things a lot differently, which is what we've tried to do on this show. And we've had a lot of people come on that have given us some new ideas. So we're going to wrap up this season with a best of, or an in case you missed it, kind of a look back. Unlike the president's doctor, we think it's okay to look backward. (laughs) We're going to look backward. (laughs) Yes. We're going to look backward in order to look forward because history is important and understanding the context of things is important. So, Elise, what stood out to you the most? Okay. Well, first, it's kind of this big point that we just made, which is that often the idea of talking about care or family, it gets siloed off. These issues are not only important, they are tied into and kind of anchor the larger sort of political, social, and economic crisis we face. Yeah. It's all connected. The COVID-19 recession is exacerbating the existing care crisis in America. Yeah. This is the most unequal recession that we're going through in modern American history because it's hitting Black and brown moms the hardest. Right. And research indicates that now, seven months into this crisis, mothers of school-age children are taking the longest to regain employment. They're also the ones most relied upon to take care of everyone else. Right. So 865,000 women left the workforce in September. That's insane. That's alarming. Yeah, that happened just as remote schooling started back up, which I, I really feel like, like, let's pause for a second here because a lot of people who 
don't have kids kind of acted like, oh, school started. So that's good for you, right? Like, uh, no, that's a whole extra job that Mm. everyone's just assuming mostly moms are going to pick up somehow in all this extra time we have. Right. And we have to underline the point that many of these moms are working moms. Yeah. So they also have jobs. And in the case of a lot of Black and Latino moms, those are the people who are also taking care of other kids, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They are the teachers. They are the daycare workers. They are the home health care workers. And so this is a real crisis. Why are things so bad? How did they get this way? Well, our season premiere with the social science researcher Julie Kohler framed some of the big collective pains of COVID in a way that really made sense for me. You know what stuck out to me about that conversation was just how much Julie underscored that even this sort of idyllic view of the nuclear family that a lot of conservatives usually will point to, you know, like the 1950s housewife ideal was actually enabled by government spending. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, okay, so we're not crazy. (laughs) Like, that's actually a thing that needs to happen, maybe. Some kind of support for caregiving here. Julie is a senior advisor at the Democracy Alliance and a fellow in residence at the National Women's Law Center. And she set the stage for all of this with an excerpt from her Boston Review essay saying, look, we're stressed out. The pandemic has magnified inequality and white supremacy in ways that make family life even harder. Women are disproportionately shouldering increased loads of unpaid caregiving, homeschooling, and household work resulting from school closures and stay-at-home orders. We are now experiencing a level of discomfort that really had begun long before the current crisis, and it has simply expanded to include more and more families. So this was an illuminating conversation for a lot of reasons, but for me, it focused on this fealty to this false sense of individualism that you talked about, this idea that was promoted by the leading economic system in America and the world. It's called neoliberalism. And it's a failed system. Oh, how it's failed. Yes. It's basically an economic approach that has dominated over the last half century in American life and has been characterized by a few things, privatization, deregulation, tax cuts. So it's kind of an economic approach that has tended to value free markets as the best way of achieving economic prosperity. And the individual, right? It values the individual, sort of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Exactly. And what I argue in this piece, though, is that it talks about individuals, but essentially what has been achieved over the last 40 years or so has been really the establishment of the family as the basic economic unit of society. Okay, so we know what the current responsibilities of private families are, but in your opinion, what should they be? And have you seen these kinds of responsibilities and such break down differently in other cultures, other societies? Yeah, well, I think what we're seeing right now is the vast failure of this approach. (laughs) And let's be clear, low-income families have been experiencing this for a very, very long time. And what I think the COVID crisis has done has been a tipping point for middle-class and upper-middle-class families. And it's been that tipping point really for two reasons. One is that one of the few remaining public benefits that we have in our society for children is K-12 education. And with school closures, middle and upper-middle-class families are not accessing school, right? So we're denied that one kind of remaining public benefit. And the other is that, you know, basically our care system is one that 
upper middle class and middle class families have been able to get by based on the underpaid labor of mostly Black and Latinx women, disproportionately women of color, who are providing all of those caregiving services and providing a lot of that domestic or household labor. So the COVID crisis has disrupted both. So I do think that there are new political possibilities because we are really seeing that kind of all of these beliefs that have been promoted, that it's just about good family decision-making. Like if you make good, responsible decisions, you'll be fine. Well, we've already always known that it hasn't that hasn't been the case. And now many people that may have bought into that ideology are experiencing it pretty directly firsthand. This then got us into another big idea that we had to address this season, which is childcare yeah. and how it's disappearing and the fact that daycare centers are getting decimated by this crisis. We'll talk about that and more after a quick break. It's Elise Hugh, and we're back with Labor's season wrap-up. We're taping this while I spent another day providing emotional support and tech support to my children and to my friends' children. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! Because we're we're still out of school. America, fuck yeah. (laughs) Thanks, pangolins. Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Seriously. America is still mostly out of school. Some of them are doing this hybrid thing where it's like a couple days a week your kids are at school, but that can uh, make things kind of difficult to manage too. It's a mess. It's a total mess. And we don't know when it's going to end. A few top lines on the child care crisis in America right now. This is America's first really female recession. And what I mean by that Mm. is that more women left the labor force than the total number of jobs the country added last month in September. Wow. Wow. It's dissolving the childcare industry, too. And for as long as schools cannot return in person, it's leaving just so many working moms without any options. I I had a lady the other day say, well, I would be a working mom, but I can't do my job remotely and my kid's not in school. Totally. Y'all are used to by now hearing our kids in the background because there's no other place for us to take them. Yeah. And (laughs) it used to be absurdly funny for me to say, oh, I'll just put them in a crate until, you know, real life. (laughs) I know. I know. It's just so, uh, yeah, it's dystopic. So many women are considering or actually just leaving their jobs altogether to balance the needs of their kids and families. Working moms are more than three times as likely to be responsible for the majority of the housework and child care during the pandemic, according to a new report published by Lean In. It would be nice to say that after the pandemic is over, <laughs> ha, things will go back to normal. <laughs> when? But the places that working parents used to rely on aren't just temporarily on hold, right? Some aren't going to be coming back at all. Yeah. And the ones that are sticking around have had to dramatically shift how they operate. So we talked to Nikki Yamashiro, director of research at the After School Alliance, about how after-school programs are still finding ways to support kids, even when the kids aren't attending school in person. I mean, what we're seeing is that programs are really stepping up and adapting their services to meet the unique needs of their communities. We've talked to programs who are serving high percentages of English language learner students, and then their families are coming to them needing services that they didn't need before because of the pandemic. 
So programs are dedicating resources to translate materials on COVID for families and helping them walk through the steps of how to access the services that are available to them. Wow. It seems very clear that these programs are providing extremely necessary services and that funding is an issue and has been sort of a chronic issue. Do you have any sense of why there hasn't been more funding put towards these things? Why is it being left up to parent fees? And are there any sort of coordinated legislative pushes to get at this with public spending, especially now? There is this outdated idea of what after-school programs are. Um, A lot of people still think of programs as just babysitting as a place where you keep your kids and maybe they get a healthy snack. There isn't a recognition of just how far after-school programs have come and all the supports that they provide, not just the kids and their programs, but the supports they provide for working families. Even at the local level, after-school programs aren't being brought to the table to talk about decisions about what's happening in the school day. Um, And I think we need to break down the silos that exist in the education system. That's the lay of the land we're confronting. But part of the reason for having these conversations is to say, hey, we're not alone. We're not to blame, as you mentioned, Amy. And also, if we are on the same page and have a better understanding of where things are at, we can speak with louder voices on how to fix what's broken. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. This is the whole reason we started this show, is that there is actually quite a bit of research and quite a bit of history to look at that can help us in coming up with solutions here. So when it comes to fixes, one episode we did was with Janelle Palacios, a Native American social science researcher, who discussed an age-old way of parenting that happens around the globe and in indigenous communities in America, but really got lost when the white European Puritans who colonized America got here. Fucking white guys. Let's listen. The family group, the clan group, the community group takes the role overall as a, a general parenting of children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was kind of that fail-safe for families that were affected that, you know, maybe the direct parents may have been absent or intermittently around. There's a good chance that there were other people in the community who may or may not have been directly related. Yeah. Uh, like a direct... Aunt uh, or uncle or exact, or Exactly. It could have yeah. been some extended family members that helped take on that parenting and guiding role. Mm-hmm. And so some kids then had both parenting kind of experiences that from their direct parents and then also from the extended family. Mm-hmm. Which I believe still holds today. No, it's yeah. true. That thread is like so mm-hmm. present in all of U.S. history. Right. You know, sharing of resources and yeah. it's the shared responsibility in a community. Right? right. Because that's really what I think it comes down to is that it's a shared responsibility of safe, safekeeping your community. I really loved this conversation with Janelle and this emphasis on how important and how great communal parenting can be and how much it's been pathologized and what a problem that's been. Right, because communal parenting arguably came first. It, I mean, it, it absolutely did. Even, you know, anthropologists have studied that and said, yes, this is this is actually how humans were able to evolve. <laughs> and it made our brains bigger, right. But for some reason, you know, we're still banging on about how, like, every family needs to be an island unto themselves <laughs> over here. 
kind of on that front, another lesson that I really loved from around the globe that we looked at this season is from Japan, which we looked at in our second episode. This dad is who everyone in Japan has been talking about the past week, all because he's about to go on leave to take care of his newborn son. It's not just because... Fathers there do even less household and childcare duties than the dads in the U.S., like a lot less. And, you know, the Japanese ministers tried to take Scandinavian policies and just sort of drop them into Japan. And surprise culture has to change too, and that's a hard nut to crack. Yep. Gender roles and boundaries, especially in the home, can be so baked in, and that is oftentimes a big, big obstacle to policy change. And a big, big theme that has come up again and again as we've explored this podcast, right? You can't just change policy. You have to change cultural norms. Culture is so hard to change. That's right. It's not easy. But one way to get at that is to start really young, which is what Japanese researcher Masako Ishii Kuntz told us. She shared her idea for getting boys to care for babies in their youth so that the first babies they hold are not the ones they spawned, Mm -hmm. which is quite common. And through bringing back good old-fashioned home ec. Home ec. They're introducing the topic of father's involvement in child care and housework. And what they do is sometimes they bring in the the babies and their moms Mm -hmm. and their dads from their community. Yeah. And then high school kids can actually touch the baby and they can take care of the baby. Yeah. So it's very practical kind of curriculum. But I I think if boys can get involved from elementary school on, um, this will do some trick. So that could help on one end, but it's clear that when cultural norms are so difficult to change, then one place to really try and force some change is at work. Masako talked about this. We can see in Japan now this gap between culture and conduct Mm -hmm. because I see a lot of fathers are very interested in participating in childcare, but at the same time, because of their long work hours or maybe because their bosses are not so understanding, they sort of end up sort of being outsider. So a lot of dads today, they want to do it, but they can't do it because they have to work. Workplace policies have to shift to encourage more divisions of labor at home. I know in in Japan, they actually had to start a whole program to try to train older male executives who like, you know, had come up in this system where if you went home early to take care of your kids, you were like a bad worker, you know? And that's something that, you know, maybe is not as extreme here, but definitely comes into play in the U.S. Yeah. And especially in information economy jobs, right? Like in tech, yes, at law firms. I know it's really hard for partners mm-hmm. who are yep. male to say, hey, I'm going to take some time off or I'm going to take my full allotted parental leave. You're definitely seen as weak or soft. Um, because we're still in a very patriarchal society, right, with very patriarchal norms. Yeah. But working hard and parenting hard are not either or, right? It's a both and. Yeah. That's something that really has to shift at the boss level right. and at the institutional levels. Right. When I was doing research for my book, like the, the vast majority of people that I talked to who felt like their lives were working as working parents were people who had a boss who also had kids mm-hmm. and and like understood that a certain amount of flexibility was required in their job. Um, and it didn't actually matter whether that boss was a man or a woman. It just had to be someone who had like also done this shuffle <laughs> and, and kind of got it. Well, flexibility is something that Leslie Ford talked about with us 
Leslie Ford came up with something called the mom's hierarchy of needs. She was in just last week's episode, and she is working with a lot of employers and finding that as we map out the post-COVID world, some workplaces are trying to change. You know, enlightened employers are seeing an opportunity to shift this. Having employers be interested and involved in curating childcare resources and options. There's one organization where I spoke with one of their HR leaders and they actually created an on-site childcare facility. They're in a unique position. They were able to do very rigorous testing. They're, they have kind of a scientific research foundation to their organization so they can test kids and test caregivers like, you know, every week and do it in a very safe way. But yeah, it's like just having that so their employees could have some peace of mind and reclaim some productivity during what is a really stressful time. This is so critical. And this is a big reason that so many companies have started to think about offering things like on-site childcare because A, it's attractive. Why isn't it more of a thing? I would love all the NPR kids to be able to play together. I mean, how cool is that? Yes. Well, it also just makes for happier, better employees who are not like worried about their childcare situation, right? It helps with talent recruitment. It helps with retainment. Almost every company that's done it has said that they have seen a massive return on investment. There's actually huge tax breaks and incentives for companies to do this too, which I feel like never gets talked about. It's like a total (laughs) win-win. I don't understand why they're not just all doing it. It's culture, right? There's certain blocks about it in in the way we think about our norms. I think so. Our society has not normalized on-site childcare, even though it could easily be possible. Yes, totally. Like somehow we normalized on-site foosball, but not on-site childcare. (laughs) Yeah, what happened there? I don't know. I don't know. The other thing that Leslie talked about, I thought that's really important, is this notion that we always sort of prioritize our children's safety and security and health first. And of course, it should be that way, but not at the expense of your own, right? It should never happen such that you are devoting so much of your time and energy to everything else in your household that you don't have any time or energy to devote to yourself. Yeah. Because asking for what you need as a burnt-out parent isn't selfish, It's rather key because of the interconnectedness of everything, right? Right. I think it's pretty hard to be a good parent if you're just feeling so burnt out, like you're risking your health and your mental health. It's a slippery slope. It's not good. Which also totally ties into our conversation with Australian researcher Petra Buskins. She advocates for what she calls strategic absences from our home life. So basically taking time away from parenting is good for us, for our creativity, for our passions. And that benefit just radiates outward. Oh man, how I miss just packing up my suitcase and getting on a plane. (laughs) I know, I know. And going off for work. Like I was actually always leaving. You know, I used to travel a lot, probably once every two weeks. And it was almost always for work. Mm -hmm. But still, it was for work in which I was unencumbered by sort of kids waking me up in the night for whatever reason, or having to make sure that homework was done or pickup was on time. And so just having that dedicated time, that strategic absence um, was really important. Yeah. Getting to be an adult. Petra is a social science researcher at the Australian College of Applied Psychology. Here's how she suggests we take time away. 
So most of the women were knowledge workers and I think that's something important to say because, of course, it's harder to do that, I think, if your work is more practical. Not impossible, but I think different challenges arise. So I had an archaeologist who wanted to go on a dig and she went for three months and had to do a lot of negotiation with her husband and her mother to pick up the tab so she could go on this dig, which she felt was really important for her career. Another woman is a poet and she just needed that kind of insular space that I know I need in order to write, Mm. which means not kind of trying to do it with school pick up and drop off and holding all that second shift domestic chores in place, but rather letting go altogether. So one of my central findings was that many of these women were still intensive mothers in Sharon Hayes' sense of that term. However, they, they needed this time and space in order to fully let go of the second shift. And in fact, this is inspiring because I think that's exactly what I'm going to need in order to write a book. Because I've been trying to watch my three small children and I feel stalled, right? Like I just don't have any headspace to do the research and just to do the thinking that sometimes comes about just by not doing anything at all or outwardly not appearing like you're doing anything. I think that's critical because it's not only about productivity, it's about what is behind productivity. And we often don't talk about that, certainly under neoliberalism, we're just into the runs on the board, the output. I mean, this was articulated beautifully by the woman in my study who was a poet. She referred to it as allowing the balls to roll, just spontaneous time that was empty that she could fill with inspiration and thoughts and you know, little meandering ideas. And you can't do that when you're framed in this nine to five. And so a big part of it was releasing from the nine to five. This, for me, feels like such a huge luxury right now, the idea of time that isn't spoken for, you know, that isn't like, okay, I have to do this work in this period of time, then I have to go to the grocery store, then I have to deal with homeschool, then I have to like, you know, I mean, I swear, I like, I, I, I'm waking up earlier and earlier every day to just try to get some few minutes of time in the day that is like just for thinking and it's it's impossible. I think actually strategic absence seems like the only way to get that at all right now. Well, and on top of all the threats of the pandemic and the economic stresses and the lack of childcare, there's one of your main topics of expertise, climate change, catastrophic climate change, upending everything. I know. And it's like, I'm pretty realistic about the actual impacts and like, you know, that they're going to happen in our lifetime. However, I thought I would be much older. Yeah. Raising kids in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, like checking the fire map to see if you're going to have to evacuate anytime soon is, is fucking terrible. But I have to say that Beth Sowen actually somehow managed to make me feel better about all of that. I'm like, will you adopt me? Beth Sowen is a scientist and a social scientist who's come up with this very complicated computer model that allows her to look at solutions that might deliver both short-term and long-term benefits. To do that, she has studied systems collapse for a long time. So Ironically, that made her sort of an optimistic person for us to talk to. Okay, let's listen. Picture a pyramid with white men standing at the top and then white women and then people of color and then animals and maybe plants underneath that and maybe like microorganisms and the soil. 
that is a way that some subset of humans on Earth have organized themselves for the last 500 years. Some, <laughs> the ones at the top by choice, and the rest of them, you know, not not having a choice. Um, but but the way the world is actually organized is much more of a net or a web of interconnection and mutuality, right? So get rid of the pyramid and picture a circle with all these connections between all of those parts. And so we've designed all these systems with that pyramid in mind. And we've, for 500 years, been kind of chewing through ecosystems, communities, cultures. We've extinguished all of them and you know, instances of all of them. We're brought to the very edge of survival with climate change. We don't need a lot more feedback telling us that that's a view of the world that doesn't fit the world. It's not working for us. I have never really thought about where children, you know, fit in that view, but they're not at the top of the pyramid, right, and how we've organized our society. New systems are being forced to be invented, and that's kind of a creative, generative time for better or worse, you know, the the opportunity I see is to choose that view of a web, you know, Dr. King's inescapable network of mutuality and say, I don't know how this homeschooling pod is going to work, but it's going to be a web and not a pyramid, <laughs> you know. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to feed everybody in this valley, but we're going to start with the assumption that the soil, the plants, the farmer, the eaters, we're all a web. And like, if we start with that, how would we design this thing? The way that conversation hit me was, wow. I mean, what a thoughtful woman. What a thoughtful scientist. Yeah. And she really got me hopeful about how we can rearrange or rethink what we should expect of one another and expect of the way we live and the systems in which we live. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be this way. And um, are our systems working for us? Absolutely not. You know, are we necessarily feeling contented and that sense of belonging and that sense of fulfillment from the way things are, whether that's in the way that we work, in the way that we parent, in the way that we relate to one another? No, but we can imagine something completely different. Right, exactly. I have found myself repeating to myself a few times since talking to Beth, like, I'm a part of the web. I reject the hierarchy. Yes. <laughs> I liked that about that conversation, too, that she wasn't like, you know, we need to go out there and like revolutionize absolutely everything tomorrow. It's like, just start thinking about it differently. Like, what would this look like if I was looking at it from this community perspective? How could I change even a tiny thing to make my life more like that? Equitable. Yeah. 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 And the broadest idea we want to leave you with, y'all, is a simple but rather radical notion that these issues are worth talking about all the time and they shouldn't be bucketed off as a lifestyle question or as a soft topic. That's right. The Longest Shortest Time podcaster and mom, Hillary Frank, faced this for years being told that, you know, mom stuff was a silly thing and not worthy of reporting or thinking about. Let's listen to Hillary. I'm curious if you've seen some sort of consistent thread in your reporting that you mm. could point to as like, these are the really key systemic issues. Man, I mean, like, number one is that whenever somebody tells me a story, they feel so alone. <laughs> Everyone feels like they're the only one going through the thing that they're going through. Yeah. So let me just ask a follow-up right away then. What do we do about this sense of isolation and alienation? How can we better bridge to one another? 
I think by talking about this stuff more, I mean, that was really the mission of The Longest Shortest Time was to be telling enough diverse stories that at any given time, many people would be listening to a story about somebody who on the surface they would think they could not relate to. And then the story would be universal enough that they would be able to relate. And then maybe that listener would be less judgmental the next time they heard somebody else make a choice like the one they heard in the story. I hope you all got to hear that whole episode. And if you haven't, go back and listen to that one because there are so many funny anecdotes involving vaginas. (laughs) And I think penises also. It's just, that was a really good one. I really enjoyed those conversations. It was really fun. It was fun. We also asked for your questions and input, and we want to read a note that stood out to us and that will be a guiding star as we prepare season two for early 2021. Victoria Faselli, one of our listeners, writes, Hi team, I'm loving the podcast, but I can't help but notice a big hole in coverage. Parenting kids with disabilities. You talk about low-income parents juggling, but not disability parents. It is actually impossible to parent a child with a disability in this country and work. Can we have an episode to talk about the labor angles on this? Oh my God, yes, please. Yes. And you know what's crazy about that is that I have a disabled brother and an autistic nephew and like lots of lots lots of windows onto this so so yes i'm surprised that we didn't include this but absolutely i was just talking to someone the other day that like if you have a kid with special needs your options are super limited even if you have a lot of funds you know it's like there're only so many services that even exist for people and forget it if you don't have unlimited funds there's no support at all And Zoom school doesn't necessarily work with kids with disabilities, depending on, you know, the severity of of the disability or the type of disability. So, yes, Victoria, we are on it. We're going to find a good angle on this for labor and cook it up for you for 2021. It's not too late to send voice memos or emails with your questions and ideas as we head on a break to prep season two. Yes. You can write to us at team at reasonablevolume.com or reach out to us on Insta and Twitter. Elise is at Elise who, W-H-O, or I'm at Amy Westervelt. Labor is produced by Audrey No and Rachel Swaby. Rachel guides us also with editing, and she has all season long. Mm-hmm. And it is a co-production between my company, Reasonable Volume, and my company, Critical Frequency. We have so enjoyed learning and growing and teasing out ideas with you all season long. It means a lot to us to be on this journey together. And so next season, we're not just going to have an episode on disabilities. We will have more episodes depending on what kind of feedback we get from you. And I know we were also planning some things for season one that are going to get pushed off to season two, like mom jeans, a history of mom jeans. Very excited about that. Yeah. Yes. Also, um, activism and motherhood and why people's perspective on that changes depending on what race you are. That's a very interesting topic relevant to today. Absolutely. And I want to do one that's really focused on what's happening on the ground in terms of legislation or things that could crack like practical measures that are changing or could change that we could all sort of um, better understand. 
Thanks again to all of you for listening, for learning with us, for your feedback. And we can't wait to be in your ears again for season two. For now, bye. Bye. Bye.